Quick warning before we start today's episode, the audio levels in this one is a little bit off. Uh, I, I, I messed up and my microphone just wasn't as clear as it normally is. Thankfully, Lior's voice is crystal clear and I personally much prefer to listen to her speak. So hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'll be better next time, promise. This is What's Next In with Phil and Leora. A podcast about what is changing and how we can be ahead of it. Join us as we test each other's perspectives and explore new ideas through science and behavior. I've got to say that, like, I think I was introduced to crypto, I think four years ago, when in my mind, it was still very early, at least for me to kind of be aware of it. And I was doing some consulting work and the partner on my project was really passionate about Bitcoin and there was an expert on um, kind of cryptocurrency on my project as well. So it was very an up and coming subject that we would talk about on our pastime. And so I was introduced to cryptocurrency around then and I had no idea what Bitcoin was, what Ethereum was. I loosely kind of understood the concept of what blockchain technology was all about. But I figured I would invest 200 bucks in Ethereum because I was like, this this is something, but I have absolutely no uh, interest in losing too much. So I just want to play around. So I put in 200 bucks in Ethereum. Phil, did, like, have, like have, what, what's your experience in crypto investing? Have you bought Bitcoin or Ethereum? Like, what are you, what are you thinking? Yeah, so I remember the first time I heard of Bitcoin was in undergrad. And only the nerdiest people knew about it. They were like, oh, what are you trying to say about me? I'm sorry. (laughs) They're all like physics kids or like computer science nerds. And it was so inaccessible. You had to like know a little bit of coding. You had to mine stuff. And I'm like, Minecraft, what? But (laughs) that's it. You play Minecraft, you get crypto. I, I legit thought like, okay, so people are playing Minecraft and they're getting Bitcoin. So that must be, so is Bitcoin like Minecraft game money? (laughs) But I mean, as anyone who's been watching the markets uh, lately, it's been wild the rise over the past few months. And yes, I finally bit the bullet and put like a thousand dollars into Bitcoin in the fall. And it's raised. I have like two thousand dollars now. So I got like I, I doubled my investment in a small amount of time. But you know you're I, ready to retire i'm ready yeah i'm just call it in like, killing it needs, you're needs, done needs to work i got 2k <laughs> in the bank baby <laughs> um but no i think it's just a really interesting um there's a really interesting culture around it there's a really interesting idea like it, it's really driven by youth speculation but then in recent months large institutional investors have been putting their money into it as well which has really given it legitimacy and I think has fueled the rise in the last few weeks and months. But I'm still super skeptical about it. Um, what do you think about, I mean, investing in general? I think so. I think investing in crypto, in my mind, is different than you know your typical investing because crypto to me, as, mon- like as many articles as I read on it, it's such speculation and it's, I mean, all investing is, but crypto is just one that I feel that the majority of folks who probably invest in crypto, and I'm so guilty of this, don't fully understand the entire kind of thing about what it's all about. And I've read some of it, and you know, I, I've known, I've browsed through these white papers about what these cryptocurrencies are, but at the end of the day, I feel that a lot of people are buying it because it's a shot at making it big, right? 
what if you happen to be that person who quote unquote wins the lottery and puts in, you know, 200 bucks in Ethereum, forgets about it. And five years later, you're a billionaire. And that is exactly not what happened to me. Although I wish <laughs> my 200 bucks became a billion. But it's interesting because um, I find that when you're, you're investing, it's you're kind of I almost picture people in two types of ways. One is the investor who's trying to get get lucky, right? I'm going to buy Tesla and then in a month I like more than quadrupled my earnings and I'm killing it. There's that kind of that like that spicy investor. And the other investor is someone who just wants to put their money kind of forget about it and hope that it just naturally beats inflation and they're able to kind of continue to make a good return on it. Yeah, I, I agree and I think we're both in a pretty privileged position where we can actually talk about investing and we have the hobby of looking into it. There are a lot of people in our age range or in our group that don't have the privilege of being able to invest money. But I also think that the the reason why there are more young people investing today and getting involved in markets is because technology has really lowered the barrier for people to invest. When, as I said earlier, when I first heard of Bitcoin, it was super inaccessible and only nerds knew how to use it. Now you can get it on your Wealthsimple app or a bunch of other apps and easily invest into a marketplace with the click of a button. It's almost been gamified. And I think that's true around investing in general, whether that's robo-advisors or stock trading or other things, the, the technology to lower the barriers and increase the involvement and accessibility of young people has really changed the trends, I think, in the entire space. And really what's driving this in my view is that traditional ways of investing, for example, purchasing a home, are increasingly becoming out of reach for younger people, especially in urban population centers like Toronto, Vancouver, New York, San Francisco, etc. And so they have money to do with it, but not enough to purchase a home and not anytime soon. And they obviously don't want it to just waste away in a savings account. So I think it's, it's really this confluence of technology and timing that has driven people towards riskier and quote unquote more fun investing. But what do you think about that that shift and and how has that behavior changed and what are the impacts do you think? Like if you think about what happened, I don't know, if you're thinking about investing a decade ago, the landscape for investment was just like black and white compared to what it is right now. Like it's just so different, right? If I think about it, like like my husband bought um, some Bitcoin just to get into the buzz and I was chatting about it. And like, I, like he made money because Bitcoin was going up. But if you think about it, that took like, I don't know, like a minute of effort, right? Like he was using his app, he put money in, forgot about it. Next week he checks, he's like, whoa, like I'm already up whatever the amount was. Like, that's crazy to me. It's crazy to me to think that like 10 years ago, if I was looking to invest, I'd have to go through a bank. Oftentimes there's like a minimum amount. You can't just come into a bank and say, invest this $1 for me. But sometimes there's a minimum that they, they want you to come in with. Whereas, like you mentioned, the barrier to be able to invest for almost, you know, anyone who has any amount of money has become so much lower and so much easier to get to that you can make um, investment decisions and start investing when you don't have like a ton of money that you would typically or traditionally go to a bank. And that's, I think that's huge. And I think that's so important because oftentimes when we think about why people are invest or how people want to invest, um, your average Joe, aka like me sometimes, like 
it was nervous, right? Like I want to invest money. Yes, I want to make returns, but I have no clue what the stock market is all about. And the more that I try to educate myself and read on it, and the more I understand different strategies and follow different investors, the less I feel like I know, which is so funny because it's one of those things that I feel like the more I read, the more I read, the less I know. And um, I think what all of these technologies and apps have been able to do is solve something that um, in behavioral finance we call the last mile problem. So it's something where let's say I want to start investing my money and I read all about it and I get ready and I know how much I want to invest. The only thing that's missing is what we call this last mile, the actual action to get my money into some sort of investing. And that's oftentimes like the biggest thing that companies are trying to do. How do we address that last mile, that last little bit to get someone to actually invest their money? And with these new apps and technologies, it's becoming so much simpler, like that barrier, like we mentioned, to really address this last mile problem to get me to actually open up my wallet and throw some money into some app or technology, wherever it is, and start investing is so easy. And what that means is, like you mentioned, people who are thinking about investing can. And like we mentioned, um, it is a privilege. And even now it's almost becoming more widely accessible because you don't have to necessarily have a certain minimum and you don't necessarily need to have, you know, someone like a a wealth advisor that you're paying, you can really just open up your wallet, find some kind of tech, and you're already investing, which really solves that whole last mile problem that was so, so difficult, perhaps, um, before this was available. Mm -hmm. I think it's a double-sided sword, though, don't you? And what I mean by that is, sure, we've lowered the barriers of entry, but there are people who perhaps are are investing in an irresponsible manner or are investing without knowing what they're investing in or in companies and in stocks just because everyone else is investing. And I think what's happening is you're seeing a distortion in the market where you have a company like Tesla, which has a larger market cap and valuation than all the other major um, uh, car companies combined with a much smaller um, capability of manufacturing or number of units sold or even profitability than a lot of, than say Toyota, for example. But what people are investing in is the story, is the brand, is the potential. It's the idea that cars will become electric in a more increasingly um, a rapid pace, especially as we continue to try to decarbonize our economy. All of these things I agree with, but to the extreme that now Elon Musk is the richest man in the world, <laughs> I, I don't know if I believe that. And so I, I do think that it's great that we're able to lower the barriers of entry so more people are engaged, but it comes at a price. And I'll give you an example. There was, um, there's been a lot of feedback and pushback, from, especially in America, around the app uh, Robinhood, which is mm-hmm. an investment app that allows you to trade stocks very easily. And the way that they, you know, there are different ways you can trade stocks. You can just trade normal stocks, buy a stock in a company, but you can trade more complicated stocks called futures or derivatives, where you're betting on a second market or on a selling or on the future price of a company where you can bet on a company doing worse and you can bet with money that you quote unquote don't have. And there was actually a story uh, last year of a teenager who was using this well, this app, Robinhood, and was investing using very sophisticated financial uh, products that he did not understand, looked on his app and saw that he was in the red like $700,000 or something ridiculous like that. Wow. And then he wrote um, he wrote a suicide letter and then he killed himself. 
Oh my god. And that was a huge wake up call, I think, to that whole industry and to people that, you know, this is it's not just a game. And so so I think there's very much a middle ground to be had here where we can decrease the barrier of entry for people to invest, but also not gamify it to the point where people are investing irresponsibly and that's taking a toll on their mental health, on their financial health, and potentially their future. Wow. And that's and that's what happens, right, when something becomes almost too easy, like you mentioned, and that's such a sad story. And it's almost the reality, right? Because as it becomes more and more accessible, more and more people are doing it. And how do you make sure that everyone who is kind of playing around with their money and investing understands the educational knowledge you need to be able to make the right choices? If I think about kind of human behavior and the choices they make, oftentimes humans are innately irrational, which means that they, even though they might have a specific goal and want to, you know, have the best intentions at heart, sometimes our brain plays tricks on us. And so we're actually um, not as rational as we think we are. And this kind of ties into biases. So you mentioned, you know, people want to buy, for example, Tesla, and they want to, you know, make it big as quick as they can. And to me, that's almost um, an opportunity to address these biases that humans have. And one, and the one that you mentioned about Tesla is something that we call the attention bias. And so this is kind of where evidence suggests that people will be investing in companies that uh, they see headlines in in the news, and they might not be investing in companies which have potential like the lesser known companies, the ones that may not have heard of. So oftentimes you'll be investing in those Teslas and Apples and Amazons because of this attention bias, because you're seeing it in the news and because that kind of tricks your mind to thinking, well, I'm hearing a lot about it, so I may as well invest in it. That must be the good thing. And there's all number of biases. There's the national bias, which is like the idea that you want to invest in the stocks and companies of your own country because you don't trust other companies. There's honestly, there's a bias that's called the cockiness bias where investors want to believe that they're good at what they do and they aren't going to change their investment habits because their confidence is above um, kind of their rationality. And so all of these um, games that our minds play on us are so, so relevant in investing and so important to address because otherwise, you know, you bad things happen. Maybe you lose a ton of money and that's quite detrimental on your life. And so as we get these technologies to become, you know, re uh, reduce that barrier, well, we're not actually taking the time to educate investors into understanding what that actually means and how they can make sure that their behaviors are aligned with what their outcome they want to look for. Yeah, and, and you know, this is exactly why I'm such a huge fan of passive investing tools, you know, these so-called robo-advisors, which essentially build a balanced portfolio, a mix of stocks and bonds, and depending on your risk profile. An example that I, that I use and I really like is Wealthsimple. Shouts out Wealthsimple, but we were not sponsored by Wealthsimple, although I do love your app, it's great. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it, it's true, like if you go on their website and stuff, they have like articles on like how investing works, investing 101. They really lower the barriers, but also give you an, a, a understanding of the risks involved. When I um, actually opened up my Bitcoin account for cryptocurrency, it was through the Wealthsimple app. And it was like seven days of processing so that you couldn't just open it up and then automatically put money in. And there was like, you understand that you could lose this money. Are you sure you want to do this? Don't be silly. And so I thought that was <laughs> awesome. 
But you know, and the the thing is, it, it, these robo advisors, which are taking away out all of the sort of the game of it, but but allowing people to build wealth slowly, I think is 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 really valuable. And it, it, it there's a, a huge sort of distinction between robo advisors of today and what you would think of traditional advising and, and investment um, that perhaps our parents use, right? And I I think that. For many people, investment can seem like a foreign and complicated thing. And so here's another example of where technology is slowly replacing um, what would normally be a person service oriented profession like investing. You know, so I, I'm curious, Dior, like, do your parents have any investments? And if so, have they ever considered using something like Wealthsimple or another robo advisor? Yeah, so yeah, I think that um, my parents do invest, but they haven't used a technology-based one. Not to say they're not open to it, but it's definitely interesting because um, I don't have the stats on me, but I imagine the, the most popular age group to use these kinds of technologies are probably younger, I imagine. That's me guessing. But they're probably younger. They probably have kind of uh, a longer horizon for their financial investments to kind of make mistakes and see what happens as opposed to someone who might be approaching retirement and their investing strategy would be quite different. And so I think it's a very different kind of um, uh, strategy or mindset you'd have to be uh, kind of willing and able to take on when a lot of your investments perhaps were with a traditional um, investment firm where there's someone sitting and managing your funds, taking potentially a higher fee, but at the same time you have that human contact, which is something that is hard to get rid of because it's something that you're financial advisor knows you, knows your strategy, knows what you're trying to do, knows your timeline, knows your goals, and that's really important. And so I think that when you consider kind of the types of people who are using these technologies, it's oftentimes the people who have potentially more uh, more appetite for risk in case something doesn't go wrong. And I almost don't even mean, you know, the market. I almost mean the technology itself. Like, what if something happens? We put so much trust in these apps and tools, but you know, with all the the number of increasing cyber attacks, what does that mean for our kind of future wealth and all these apps? And so while, for example, like bringing it back to my parents are really um, people who might be kind of getting closer to retirement, even though they might be open to these types of technologies, I imagine that um, it wouldn't be their main strategy because they'd want to stick to what they're comfortable in, what they know, to keep that safety net, right? To keep the fact that they want to retire comfortably as they had envisioned. So I think that um, I'm, I'm curious, Phil, like we've talked a little bit about investing and kind of what that means for you and I, what that means potentially for our parents and uh, kind of the downsides of the barrier kind of decreasing as well. But what's next? What do you think is next for robo-advisors as we kind of continue to become more technologically savvy in this area? Yeah, I think that as the population continues to increasingly become a larger share of what we call digital natives, you know, people that are younger in our generation who grew up with the internet. And, you know, I'll talk a little bit with my parents in that sense too. They, you know, for them, cash is king and my parents hate buying anything online they're like oh it's gonna get hacked everything is gonna be hacked <laughs> they watch like msnbc or like a dateline but i remember like in the 2000s and they're just so terrified of anything to do with the internet that comfort level is entirely different for a whole new generation of people 
that will soon become, if not there, if not already, the majority of the workforce and the majority of the ones who actually are contributing to the economy in a in a real measure, not just a a wealth building measure, but the ones who make things, have jobs, and actually try to achieve policy and all of these things. Because of that, I think the trend towards robo advising and the trend towards automation. The, the increasing use of in artificial intelligence in financial services will only continue to increase. That will, we're going to start to see more and more of these apps and these solutions in things beyond just robo-investing, but across our entire spectrum of financial products, which I think, for example, Wealthsimple is already trying to do. You're seeing things like online only, a no brick and mortar store type banks like EQ Bank, mm -hmm. which have high interest savings accounts. Or you're going to see um, examples of uh, financial services the, and, and apps which make it a lot easier for you to get a mortgage or to compare rates or to find credit cards. And people are using this more and more. And with the pandemic accelerating the shift at home, the, the, these same services are still needed. You still need to think about your mortgage every now and then. You still need to think about your insurance policy. You still have to renew these things. The dependence on in-person and sort of hand-holding will only continue to decrease. But I also think that the, that pendulum, while it swings, people still want that human connection. So I'm, I'm curious to ask you, like, what do you think about that gap? It, obviously, I'm on, on the technology side of this podcast, <laughs> so I'm going to be biased towards like, oh yeah, tech is going to, you know, rule everything and for good or for bad. But I, I also truly believe from like a humanistic and empathetic point of view that there is still space for humans and that people need trust when they, when they work with something like money. So what do you think is the future from the behavior and the human side of things? Great question. So if we think about um, <clears throat> kind of thinking back to these investing firms, I wanna say 10 years ago, very little, I'd say, um, technology was used for kind of the end user, the person who's investing. You'd sit across the table from someone who's your wealth manager, your personal finance advisor, whoever it is, and they're the ones who are managing everything for you. So it was very much human to human um, kind of interaction. And as we're moving forward, we're seeing less of that human to human interaction, as he mentioned, all becoming digital. And um, you're essentially starting to invest money without really speaking to anyone if you don't want to. I'll pick on Wealth Simple. They give you this option to speak to someone as you're setting up your account, but it's very much optional. You don't need to. And that's the case with a lot of these kind of online and digital banks where I can start to begin my investing journey or continue this investing journey without ever speaking to a human. And that's obviously going to become more and more popular. But I almost think that as we become almost too digital and everything's going to be so on your phone or completely... Um, like the entire almost customer journey, your investing journey will be completely digital. What's going to make a company stand out or that value proposition, I think will actually be bringing that human touch back. So as we mentioned, more and more people are going to be kind of using these tools for investing, but the education system isn't going to be able to keep up with this. I don't think that everyone who will be investing will have the kind of critical knowledge to understand what this means, what that looks like for their future. And so I feel like there's almost going to be an opportunity to bring back some level of kind of that human interaction, whatever that looks like, and offer what I think I like to call these micro-educational moments where we're actually able to 
help educate our, you know, investors are come are kind of from these companies to be able to make the right choices and to be able to address those biases they might have so that they are in a, like they're able to um, kind of better their financial journey and get to the goals they want. Because at the end of the day, technology is fantastic and we can obviously do so much with it. But I still feel that human touch to be able to help guide people in terms of what they want to achieve is going to be really, really critical. And I just don't see that being completely eliminated without some detrimental effect like that story you mentioned earlier. Yeah, you know, I love that in the sense that we're, I think you've hit the nail right in the head. The shift will go away from human-centered sales to human-centered education when it comes to investing. So the people that we go to and we build a trust with, it's to educate and to teach us and to build that trust so that we make informed decisions on how we use these tools. Because the tools are tools. And it's not you know necessarily the fault of a tool for the outcome, but rather it's also the responsibility for the company that develops that tool that people know how to use it. And I think that is super key. The shift will be less on people selling a portfolio or selling uh, advising services and more people selling the way to learn how to use these advising services and portfolios on your own. Yes. Because I think, you know, you feel really empowered when you make that um, decision independently. And, And I think the really smart financial institutions out there will lean into this and find ways to get ahead of that curve and empower their customers to make independent decisions while increasing the trust for that customer and allowing for that customer to come back whenever there's something that changes and and whenever there's a new thing on the market. I think that's the the key. Um, Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, Yeah, I think we're getting onto something. I feel like we're getting onto the idea of a human-centered (laughs) robo-advisor, which is almost like counterintuitive. But I think that's the way to go. I think that you uh, can, you know, automate as much as you can of the process. But at the end of the day, there, especially in the field of investing, you need to have some level of these microeducational moments or some level of um, human-centered design around it to help people make the best choices they can for their future. This week, we talked about how behavior and technology are changing the investing landscape. We talked about behavioral biases that push us to make less than perfect investment decisions and how decreasing barriers to investing can become a double-edged sword. Our What's Next In was human-centered robo-advisors that offer micro-educational moments to empower people to make their own informed investing decisions. What do you think is what's next in the way you'll invest your money?